So we're going to transition to our teaching now. We're continuing in Ephesians 6, our series called The Geography of Heaven, which is built on the thesis that throughout the New Testament, all of the scriptures are unpacking for us the good news of the gospel that Jesus came proclaiming, embodying, and giving us access into. God is here. His kingdom is here. Anyone can enter into it and follow him now that Christ has come. And as we get to chapter 6, we have learned that these heavenly places that Paul is writing about throughout Ephesians, there's not only one person in the heavenly places. There are powers and principalities and rulers and authorities that the scriptures call uh, demons. One is particularly identified as Satan, the adversary. There are spiritual beings with agency that are at work and attached to the physical dimension. There are evil spirits at work opposing God's work to bring life and love into the world. So we're spending five more weeks, including today, on a mini-series called Warfare in the Heavens. We're going through these next ten verses, nine verses, slowly marching through. We're only doing two verses today because we need to see what we have been so blinded to in our age. Namely, that what we can see and touch is not all there is. In fact, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in the scriptures, Paul, the apostle, the writer of, of 2 Corinthians, in our letter here, in 2 Corinthians, he says, what is unseen is eternal and what's seen is temporal. That means what's more real than what we can see is what we can't see. So I wonder how used to, welcome, good morning. Hello, hello. <laughs> what we can't see is more real than what we can see. I wonder if we live with that in our everyday uh, like purview. So, we're going to be walking through this very methodically, and I am not aloof to the fact that talking about Satan and demons with our age of horror movies and, and religiosity and all of these presuppositions about what it entails means we've got to debunk some of the myths. Okay, um, a few things that we talked about last week that we're going to continue to, to remind each other of. First, Satan, or Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, don't get those two mixed up. Jesus spoke of Satan and demons and confronted them in the lives of people, including freeing people from their power, more than anyone else in Scripture. So if we want to follow Jesus, we got to reconcile the fact that he believed Satan and demons were real and actually the greatest force to be opposed in the world. Second, we have to realize that being aware of spiritual warfare, that is the conflict in our lives between the adversary and the demonic, and the work of the Holy Spirit and God is a mark of maturity, not immaturity. One of the most um, knee-jerk reactions in our day where it feels like, you know, the demonic are like these beasts out in the wild somewhere, and if you happen to come across them, man, what an immature, foolish Christian you must have been to get into that trouble. No. What we'll see today is it's actually a mark of maturity to become aware of the work of the enemy in your life. What's immature is to be aloof and unaware. 
so that they can just do whatever they want. And thirdly, shoot, I didn't write down the third one. There's a third one. Oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> Holy Spirit, note taker, a note taker. Yes, yes, I should have written it down and not relied on my memory. Thank you, Scott. Do not fear Satan. He is not one to fear. Fear sin. Because it's his only power against you and I. Okay? All right. Today, our little chunk that we're taking in this battle is to set the stage of the conflict. We're setting the stage today. Last week, go back and listen to it if you weren't here. We went through, I talked too much. We talked too much about setting the stage for uh, the spiritual realm and correcting some of our false assumptions about the spiritual realm and what scripture has to say about the spiritual realm. Many surprises are held in scripture, especially in those verses that feel so weird um, that we just kind of pass over them and don't seek to understand them. But to be a follower of Jesus in the world is to live in contested space. That's why it's so hard to follow Jesus. We live in contested space. There is no neutral space in this world spiritually. So we're going to try today to unmask some of why it feels like it's contested space so that we can set the direction. The battle, though, is not for a cultural uh, is not a cultural war with religious armaments to take back America for Jesus on the political right or just to love people by affirming everything they call progress on their way to destruction as is common among Christians on the left. That's not the battle. The battle we are engaged in is to live with God together for the sake of the world. The language of the warfare is not to take territory, but to stand firm. It's to do the things that we're called to do without giving way to the enemy's temptation. Without allowing his attack and inflicting suffering on us to get us to tap out. That's the battle. So the one point today is... Be strong in God, and you will withstand the schemes of the enemy. Be strong in God, and you will withstand the schemes of the enemy. Before we get into the scriptures, I want to set our, our minds by reading one of the most helpful works that I am aware of on exposing the schemes of the enemy, a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. The premise of the book, if you're not familiar, is um, a, a commander demon writing to his underling about this particular work that the underling is doing in this person's life. And he's trying to direct him and write this letter and give him wisdom about how to disrupt this human being and keep them far from God. So kind of the, the thing that constantly is catching you is whenever the enemy is referred to in the writing, it's actually God. Because he's the enemy of the demons that are writing back and forth. This is what he says. My dear Wormwood, I wonder, Wormwood is the younger one that he's writing to, I wonder, you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that is the person that they're trying to disrupt, in ignorance of our own existence. So should you just 
keep them blind to the reality of our work? That question, at least for the present phase of our struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, read the devil. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human remains closed to belief in the enemy, that is God. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he calls vaguely forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. So put really simply, one of the tactics of the enemy is to go undetected and to infuse belief in unseen forces into things like sex and science, but keeping them, um, but not believing that there are actual invisible agents that are seeking to lead us astray that that ultimately becomes the perfect work. Because then we have belief vaguely in some power outside of ourselves in the unseen realm, but there's no, there's no actual agency behind it. We need to be aware of the enemy's schemes. So would you open up in your Bibles or in the handout? We have it printed there. We're going to be in our text. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Be strong in the Lord, and you will withstand the schemes of the enemy. All right. Stand with me as we read the scriptures. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of of the devil. Someone pray for us that the Spirit of God would lead us as we open up the Word. Come on. We're a body. We're a people. Thanks, John. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. Okay. In these two verses, Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, Paul commands all of God's people to be strong because his strength, that is God's strength, is available to all of his people. 
It's a very straightforward passage, right? Be strong in the Lord and His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. There was no genius that went into the one point for today. Be strong in God and you will stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. These two simple verses show us the essence of what is called spiritual warfare. The conflict in the contested spiritual space we live in. We're going to see that God himself is strength. But Satan has schemes, tactics, strategies, intention to lead us away from God's strength. But as we stick close to God, we'll successfully resist the schemes of the evil one. This is not rocket science. It's incredibly simple. It's like so simple, it's humiliating to think that it's so difficult for us. But when we see it rightly with humility rather than being embarrassed, we're empowered. We're doing battle against a defeated foe. First simple thing to notice is that God himself is strength. God himself is strength. I think we need to just be reminded this morning. God is strong. If, if you follow Jesus... You are in the presence and power of the one who is unmatched. There's no rival. This spiritual warfare is not a battle of peers. A few ways that we see God's power in Scripture. God is the creator who is the embodiment of life. In Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Don't lose sight of that. When God talks with intention, it happens. He calls it out of nothingness, and it, it exists. So when we're in circumstances where we feel weak and can't see a way out and don't have the resources, God's power emboldens us to provide. We don't need to be able to see how He's going to provide. He speaks and it happens. God is powerful in that he's a warrior who himself is the embodiment of justice. Nahum, one of those Old Testament prophets that many of us probably like read or heard about a long time ago, but don't look at very often, conveys this message more powerfully than any other letter in Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a portion here so that we would hear like God's heart for justice. Verses 2 through 9 in Nahum 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against His foes. He is furious with His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? 
Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. Nineveh was a city that was hostile to God's people at the time. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction and oppression will not rise up a second time. Now, sometimes we have a hard time hearing passages that speak of God's justice and his vengeance. We need to do a little, a little self-check there because if we've ever been deeply wronged, we've felt the indignation and longing for justice to be done. And then when it doesn't happen, we feel the agony of thinking it's never going to be done. Someone's going to get away with the injustice. Realizing that God is a warrior who will always ensure that no injustice will ever go unacknowledged and unpaid for is crucial to seeing God for who he is. And I'll just add, um, for people across the globe who suffer under injustice and oppression, this is good news. This is a part of the good news of the gospel. God is going to see justice over all the earth. And if we are kind of like, oh, I don't like that, we need to do a little check to see if we are not on the side of benefiting from the oppression of others. Let us not be afraid of God as a warrior who will bring perfect justice. You heard multiple times Nahum say, God is good. All who take refuge in him find mercy. God's powerful in creation. He's powerful as a warrior. He's powerful as a savior who is himself the embodiment of mercy. Isaiah 40 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Mercy is what God gives to those who feel too weak to carry on. Who feel faint as though all they can do is tap out. When God who is merciful comes into contact with one of his people who feels uh, exhausted and faint, we experience sustaining power. That's what it means that God is merciful. So, God's a savior who himself is the embodiment of mercy. Um, when I was brought to, still to this day, the moment where I felt the most at the end of myself, I was a senior in college, taking a full course load. Um, I was raising support full-time to go on staff with the ministry that I was in. Um, Kate and I were engaged and preparing to be married, and I just had ACL reconstructive surgery uh, five days earlier. And so I was laid up on my back, 
with my knee inflamed like a softball, and I did not approach the recovery process the way I was supposed to. Um, I let my knee be lower than my heart for a long time after surgery, and so if you, all you doctors could tell us exactly how this works, but my, my knee ballooned up, and I could feel my pulse in my knee all the way down to my foot. Whenever I would get down, I would feel agony all the way down my leg, and I was exhausted. On my back, I would be laying there, and my whole back hurt, my legs hurt, everything hurt, and I knew that there were weeks left in this process, and it was the most at the end of myself I ever felt. I remember crying, thinking this is not even worth living through. I opened up my Bible. I've told this story before. Played the Bible roulette thing that I would never tell you to do, <laughs> except for the fact that God is powerful and powerful in mercy. I opened up to I think it was Isaiah 30, where Isaiah says, "He sees your tears. You will weep no more." Something to the effect of, "He is behind you, speaking and leading you." And I felt God see me in my weakness. God is powerful even when we feel at our weakest. Lastly, God is a redeemer who himself is the embodiment of hope. Genesis 50:20, Joseph speaking to his brothers says, "You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people." God redeems even evil to bring about good. That is redemption. He exchanges what's broken and bad and evil and turns it into glory and goodness. So we always have hope, even in the worst circumstances. God is powerful. He's trustworthy. We need to know that as we enter into the conflicted space of spiritual warfare. There's no contest about who wins and who's more powerful. God can speak and it'll come into being. God stoops down in mercy and brings power to those who are weak and frail. God is stacking up accounts so that justice may be brought. And God turns even evil for good. So where are you in need of power this morning? Where do you need to simply remember that the God you are with in Jesus Christ, who is in you by Holy Spirit, who is over you sovereignly as your loving Father, is for you and not against you? Maybe it's in your anxieties. Maybe it's in your stress. Maybe it's in your suffering. Maybe it's in conflict and relationship. Remain with him. Notice that the exhortation in Ephesians 6.10 is not to take up the power of God and wield it as some third-party instrument. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his vast strength. God is the strong one. He doesn't give you a tool called God's power that then you go out into the world apart from him and wield on your own as though you need competency. Paul is saying, stick close to him. Don't leave him. Because when you're with him, most assuredly, his power will be for you. It's that simple. We're like little kids sticking close to our father. 
So, we follow Jesus. We seek to be filled with Holy Spirit. That is intent on self-sacrificing love. Believing that God can actually lead us and communicate with us and speaks to us through his scriptures, by his spirit, in the midst of community. And we trust in the sovereign hand of our Father with the results. That's how simple the power of God is. We follow Jesus. We believe that what he says is true. We seek to be filled with the Spirit. And we trust the results to God as we love people, love God, love our city. But what are, what are Satan's schemes? Because Paul introduces this topic of putting on the full armor of God. And that might, in your mind, conflict with what I just said about like being given something to then go out and do something apart from God, right? Well, we'll get to it over the next few weeks as we break down the individual elements of the armor of God that Paul speaks of. But what we are talking about, what Paul's talking about here is actually putting on the life of, of, of being with God. It's learning to live your everyday moment with God instead of apart from God. Remember last week, we talked about real life. Real life is living in connection, relationship, and communion with God. Death is being alienated from God. It's living in our own isolation by our own resources. It yields material, physical death. People wanting coffee, wanting their fix. Um, and so, the armor of God is this visualization of what life with God protects us from. So we're putting on who God is for us that we can stand against the schemes of the devil against us. Make sense? What are these schemes? Well, as a primer, refresher, John 8, 44, Jesus' most clear, direct teaching about the enemy Jesus says this, you, speaking of the Pharisees, are of your father, the devil, and want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus teaches us very clearly that Satan's goal, the devil's goal, is death. He's a murderer from the beginning. Don't think, first in your mind, physical death that leads to some sort of eternal spiritual state. Don't think that first. Think first, the enemy, the evil one, is seeking to cut human beings off from God. Who is the one who is life. His strategy is to speak lies. Is to deceive us into living in unreality, where God is not. So we saw it in the garden um, when, when the, the serpent spoke to our first parents, Adam and Eve. He said, you're not going to die if you eat the fruit. It's very plain lie. And let me just give you kind of an aside. Lies that are from the enemy will almost always be seeking to lead you into self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. The most basic root of all the enemy's lies, are that you can be self-sufficient 
and you are entitled to self-centeredness. Those conflict with the very essence of who God is. He is the giver of life and the one who gives himself away in love. Two primary strategies that the enemy has. One, he seeks to swallow like a lion. And two, he seeks to sow seeds as a farmer. These are directly from the New Testament. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Just before this, Peter was talking about humbling ourselves and guarding ourselves against pride. Suffering, pain, and fear that comes along with it, and pride are two of the enemy's strongest tools against us, where he would seek to devour us like a lion. Now, the devouring like a lion is like in an instant, right? Like, you get swallowed up, and it's done. You are in the grip of the enemy. So, anyone ever seen Breaking Bad? Okay. Conflicted about recommending it. Depends on your conscience. Um, But there are distinct moments in the tension of that show where Walter White, the main protagonist at the start, antagonist at the end, is progressively stepping into more and more darkness and evil. And the show does an amazing job of of dialing up the tension. Like, is he going to make that decision? He's not going to cross that line. And then he steps into it, and he never looks back. That's the kind of moment where a decision is made that Peter's talking about here. You're devoured by the enemy. You're captured to do his will. The kind of pride pits you against ever going back. You ever have someone that has just wronged you, and and I'm sure we have those moments where we have wronged someone else, where it's almost like it's harder to acknowledge that we did the thing than it was to make the decision in the first place? Where it's like we just deny it altogether. It's like we're rewriting the past so that we wouldn't even need to acknowledge it. That's like being devoured by the lion. Sometimes that comes through suffering and seeking to escape it. Sometimes it comes through pride. Now, that's not the only way that the enemy will will attack or seek to scheme us away from God. The second one is as a farmer sowing seed. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. He presented another parable to them in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull, up, pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them. 
but collect the wheat in my barn. So it's not a direct comparison, but Jesus is explicitly teaching that his enemy, the evil one, God's adversary, is sowing seed like a farmer into the world. He doesn't seek to only or grip us in the jaws of a lion. He seeks to entangle us with weeds that we wouldn't be able to get out. So one is sudden and in a moment, and the other is slow, methodical, undetected. That's the way his lies work. Sometimes a roaring lion comes after us. Other times, step by step, bit by bit, unrepentance of sin, um, allowing things into our life that we know we should deal with and the Spirit is communicating to us that we should deal with, but we just overlook it and say, no, next time we can become ensnared. You see these two schemes? Pride and fear and pain are the inflection points where the enemy wants to come in and sow seed or devour. So, how do we resist him? Let's look at, as we end our time, a few examples. Discerning what the Spirit of God will tell us versus what the evil spirits in the world would lead us into. The discerning of spirits is a spiritual gift that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and give it to us as a gift, but would you also teach us the discernment right now to hear your word? Okay. A couple of questions, because this is tricky, right? This feels, it feels very subtle. Think about your motives, all right, the motives underneath why you want to do what you want to do or why you feel conflicted in a given moment about a decision. Is it other-centered or is it self-centered? Is it something that will benefit others with some cost to us or will it uh, cost others to our own benefit? It's a very key question in discerning whether something's from the Lord or from the enemy. Because remember, the enemy would want us self-centered and self-sufficient, and the way of Jesus calls us to self-sacrifice and other-oriented love. That's why Jesus first said, if you, anyone would come and follow me, let him, what? Deny himself. We must be open to the fact that Jesus is calling to us demands from the outset that we question our motives and explicitly deny many of the things that feel so natural to us. And the world is rigged against that decision. The talk of self-love, self-care can be wise in a way, in a way, Right? We can't live outside of our human limitations. But if we think that it's a moral thing to serve ourselves over and above the needs of others, it's a lie from the enemy that's been systematized into what Scripture calls the world. And our flesh is drawn to that. So we have the question of motive. Is something that we're trying to discern between from the spirit of the enemy other-centered or self-centered? 
Think about our desires for a second question. Is it a longing or a craving? A longing is like thirst for water. You know you need it. You desire it. But a craving is like this all-consuming constraint upon you. You must have it. You will have it. Okay? Humiliating example. I love sports. There are times when I set my mind on watching one of my favorite teams and finding out that it is blacked out on local networks. Okay? Longing could be, oh, Lord, please, I wanted to watch that so badly, but I submit that underneath your will. Craving is, I will find an illegal online stream to watch the sport that I really wanted to watch right now. You see how one controls me to going outside the bounds of what God would have me do, assuming that illegal means like it's someone hijacking something and breaking laws and all of that, which Jesus would explicitly call us away from. Is it a longing that you desire or a craving that controls you? Right now we're fasting. Three-day fast started this morning. If you're participating in that work, um, you're going you're gonna to experience a lot of things that you thought were longings that are actually cravings. <laughs> One of the powers of fasting is teaching us to distinguish between the two. Okay. Third question regarding questions that we might ask of God. Is something we're wrestling with doubt or is it cynicism? Doubt is something that we bring to God and we say, hey, God, your word says that, that you deliver people, you deliver your people from uh, difficulty. And I'm, I've been sitting in this difficulty for a year now. This doesn't add up. Right? That's doubt. It's bringing something before God. Cynicism is refusing to believe the truth. It's just expecting that God won't hold his end of the bargain. And so when we think about deconstruction that we hear about tossed around, there are some elements that are good where we're trying to pull out things that aren't actually from God, but that are more just tradition. But there are other elements that aren't helpful, that are actually like, like a kind of acidity in the soil that kills the roots of faith in God, that just doubt that he'll ever are cynical towards his promises. One would be from the Lord, the Spirit, helping us to see and be aware of doubt that we need to bring to him like Job, the other would be cynicism from the enemy. A couple more. Are we living in fear about the future or for faithfulness here and now? Okay, when you're facing a decision, is it a decision between faithfulness now conflicted against Fear regarding the future. One of Satan's primary tactics is to get you to live for an unforeseen, unpromised future at the cost of faithfulness to Jesus here and now. If you cannot love your neighbor now so that you can think that you're being wise for the future, you are ensnared in a lie of the enemy. Um, plenty of passages where Jesus says, you're actually so free from things like anxiety, you can go and sell your stuff and give to the poor, and you'll be rich, and God will give you everything that you need. 
Because money is one of the, the clearest ways that the enemy has a stronghold here. Because we think, I need to be able to retire by the age of 65. That's a golden law that's clearly from Scripture. And the government's probably going to push it back even further. Or maybe I want to retire early, and so I have my own contextual needs there. And so therefore, I need to save up. Oh my gosh, principal, when I log into my retirement account, says that I'm in the red about my future retirement health? I need to save how much money every month now in order to be prepared when I'm 65? Like, it's insane how worldly wisdom seeks to tell us, you know, you better be, be living for me now if you want to be wise. Dave Ramsey has some stuff that's helpful, but some of his stuff is so worldly. So worldly. Um, we want to be wise, okay? We want to be wise. But if, if we ever believe that I need to be wise about my future at the expense of faithfulness now, you're living for a moment you don't even know you will have. How much more foolish can it be? Satan would cripple us with fear about the future, especially to get us to stop faithfulness here and now that the Spirit would lead us into. And lastly, is what we're trying to discern between, is it pursuing unity in Jesus or division according to the world? We are united in Jesus, and even the direct context of Ephesians 6 is in this grand tapestry throughout Ephesians where Paul is saying Jew and Gentile, one of the hardest divides according to worldly and even religious standards, had been torn down in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now people that seemed irreconcilable before are reconciled in Jesus. And one of the enemy's clear tactics is to bring division. So we start taking things that may be valuable to some degree and making them ultimate over and above unity in Jesus. Think no further in our moment than politics. I don't care what your political persuasions are. They are not more valuable than the unity we have in Jesus. And over the last three years, the number of times I've spoken to someone who said, I just cannot imagine being in a church sitting next to someone who voted for Trump. Or I just can't imagine sitting next to someone in church who voted for Biden. And they justify hostility and dividing because they convince themselves that the other people clearly just can't even be Christians. We take something that we have. Hopefully those people have thought through and made a just hard moral decision about how to vote. And probably there are blind spots in there. But guess what? Even the blind spots and the ugliness that we see in our brothers and sisters and that they see in us are not legitimate reasons to divide the body of Jesus. The enemy would want to ratchet up that emotion and hostility to the point of division. The spirit would want to cover a multitude of sins with love. So, be strong in the Lord, and you will stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. The hard work of discernment, as we seek to follow Jesus, 
be filled with the Spirit and trust our Heavenly Father with the results. We'll teach the ears of our souls and our community together how to discern between lies and truth. And oftentimes they're all mixed together, so we need each other. It's not a solo effort. If you're not in a discipleship group or community, you don't have brothers and sisters in the church to be able to process through decisions with. Think about somebody who is honest in their processing in one of my um, groups of community in TCLA about pursuing a promotion and saying like, hey, I want to make sure that even my motives in pursuing this promotion aren't just greed. Like, why do I want more money? Like, that's what we're going for. What's the purpose underneath so that we can discern what our motives are and whether or not we're biting on the hook of the enemy or being filled with the Spirit in love, okay?